Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn from Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we put out on the internet. Go to focuscompound.com to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005 for free. If you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrew at focuscompounding.com or you can go to focuscompounding.com and click that invest with us tab. The best place to get access to everything that we push out into the investing world is to follow me on Twitter at at focused compound. If you are going to Omaha this year for the Berkshire meeting and you are a prospective investor and would like to meet up for a cup of coffee with Jeff and myself, uh, reach out to me at andrew at focusedcompounding.com. So Jeffrey, how's it going? Happy Thursday. We're recording on a Thursday. Happy Thursday. How are things on your end? Mm -hmm. Good. Good? Yeah. You know, I had a dream last night that we were recording, and uh -huh. I distinctly remember seeing on Riverside, which is the program that we record our podcast through over the air, that we were an hour and 30 minutes in, and then also seeing that I never clicked the Camtasia button uh, to record, the, the recording button at Camtasia. So I realized an hour and 30 minutes in that the whole podcast was going to have to be scrapped. I don't even know if I said anything in the dream. But what what's going on here? Is this some sort of like anxiety? I mean, take I I, I don't yeah. even know what what's happening here. I don't know. Five years into it, I'm still podcasts. like worried about we have. But five years into it, and I'm yeah. still worried about you know losing a podcast. There's there's nothing worse than than doing that. I think we only lost maybe one good podcast, like a 25 minute one or something. We've never lost like a long podcast. Uh, in the early days when we did certain topics, we've sometimes stopped after five or 10 minutes or something, but that's not a technical problem. That's us redoing something or picking a different topic or whatever. Um, but not since we went remote. No. Do you remember the topic that we lost the podcast, what it was about that we lost? Oh, huh? No, I don't think I do remember what one we lost. Wasn't well, it a super investor, Charlie Munger? Oh, it might have been. I know we did the some of the Kelly formula and then scrapped it. Like we were doing the yep. you know, episode recording it and then didn't do it, but that wasn't a technical one. Yeah, you're probably right. I think that is right, Charlie. So I remember, I don't know if I ever told you about this, but where were we going? Perhaps you were going somewhere to Florida. This was summer of 2020, or maybe I was going to be gone. I forget what it was, but we recorded like six podcast maybe you're going mm -hmm. to martha's vineyard i don't know but we record like six pot six podcasts in one day and i remember i had a laptop at the time that was too big to fit in my backpack so what i would do is i would put it in my backpack and i would zip up both of the zippers and the laptop would basically still be sticking out 
right? Okay. Well, you and I get done recording all day long. I go to my car. I have my backpack on, laptop sticking out, zippers not all the way up. I open up my trunk and I almost swing my backpack off my back to throw it in the trunk. And my laptop went flying. <laughs> it went flying onto the ground. And I was like, oh my goodness, did I just lose six hours of recording because my laptop went flying because it wouldn't fit in my backpack and I just kind of zipped it up and was not careful with it. Uh, luckily, I still have the laptop. It's just sitting in my closet. Uh, we didn't lose mm -hmm. that content, but the laptop was very damaged, but I was stressing about it. People don't realize how hard it is to create content. It seems like everything is going wrong. There's even times where you and I, five years into it, right? And you'll get on here like, I have literally changed nothing, but I can't hear you right now. So then you're just messing with it on your end, or I have to mess with my mic yeah. on my end. Crazy. I mean, we're, we're professionals here, but it's, it's still, it's, it's hard. It seems like something's always going wrong. Anyways, we can get into the topic here. Five years in, still looking to improve, still having fun doing it uh current market jeff today is march 23rd 2023 and the s&p 500 is up two and a half percent year to date uh 10 year yields stand at 3.48 percent down from about four percent uh crude oil 70 bucks and natural gas continues to blow its brains out uh two dollars and mm -hmm. 17 cents um the Fed met yesterday, uh, FOMC meeting, and announced that they were raising interest rates 25 basis points. And uh, I thought it was a pretty important meeting because obviously everything that's going on in banking, inflation is still hot. Are they going to raise interest rates 50 basis points? Or are they gonna pause? There was speculation behind what a lot of people were doing. Uh, Jay Powell is still pretty strong in his thinking that they are not going to cut interest rates uh, this year. If you look at the treasury yield curve, the market does not agree with that. Uh, but I thought it was interesting mm -hmm. hearing what he was talking about how, you know, everything going on in banking and the credit crunch that is likely to come out of it in of, in of itself is deflationary and is kind of could do the job for the Fed to bring down inflation. Sounds like they're going to be much more slow, I would say, to, to raise interest rates in the future. He was talking about how all deposits in the U.S. banking system are safe. Now, simultaneously, at the same time, Janet Yellen was testifying in front of Congress and she had said that uh, I have not considered or discussed anything having to do with blanket insurance or guarantees of all deposits. So it seems like there's a difference there between what Jay Powell is saying when he very um, directly is saying that all deposits are fine in the U.S. banking system and then Janet Yellen is basically saying the opposite of that. Um, what are your thoughts on uh, yesterday and raising interest rates, the whole deposit situation? Do you think we're going to be in a structurally different world 
going forward with much higher inflation, call it three to four percent instead of two percent. Oh yeah, probably inflation target. Uh, yeah, I mean we might have higher inflation. Uh, the I don't, you know, compared to most people, I don't believe the Federal Reserve directly has much impact on inflation. So once inflation starts, uh, yeah, and st sticky type inflation that we're talking about, which is a major component of it, uh, the services, X housing and stuff is what they call it. Um, I don't think they have a very big impact on it. And it's not just that there's a lag. It actually would require very high interest rates to bring it down probably. And so th they work mostly, like we said, through financial conditions. And um, that's what they've done with this bank stuff. Um, they also work through confidence, which we've talked about through imposing discipline on the federal government by making the federal government pay for its debt, you know, instead of monetizing it all into money that doesn't bear interest and stuff. Um, so the combination of those two things uh, is basically what they do. And in the long run, that can have an effect on inflation, obviously. Um, so I think that once you have inflation, there's not a whole lot that they can do to bring it down really fast. Um, they have succeeded in bringing down the part that they can, which is the cyclical part, which is basically, like we've said a lot, housing and maybe some things like cars and things related to housing. If you look at things that are very tied to housing, you know, if you look at stocks like uh, Traeger, which makes grills, um, you know, things that are very, very exposed that way, obviously uh, they have, you know, come down in a huge way. And they've also affected some things that, um, as you saw with Silicon Valley Bank and stuff, uh, venture capital things, right? Which are very, very marginal uses of money, like just taking risk because there was no risk-free stuff. It pushes everyone out a little bit further. So the people who want to, to have risk-free things can't have risk-free things. So they have to buy things with a little risk, pushes those people out to buy things with a little more risks and so on and so on. Um, so they've, you know, those things have already adjusted. As far as like how they get down the price of a Big Mac or um, airline uh, flight attendants, pilots, mechanics, um, not to negotiate higher wages and things and how that feeds into everything. I don't think the Fed has much impact on that. So there's not much they can do. It just takes time. Do you want to talk about the Big Mac index? I know we've hit on it probably a few years ago, but I do think it's an interesting thing that we reference every now and then on the podcast. Sure. So the Big Mac Index was created by The um, Economist, which is a magazine, uh, and it tracks the local price of a Big Mac in the actual local currency and then adjusts it from there into U.S. dollars. The idea being that a Big Mac is um, a frequently purchased, not on credit, um, item that is assembled locally with local labor and often with fairly local um, uh, input costs. So the idea would be that the price should be the same in various countries. Now, there's some research that suggests that it makes more sense to adjust the price relative to the GDP per capita. Meaning that in reality, although you would think that a Big Mac should cost the same everywhere, it won't because if, say, people in Switzerland have higher GDP per capita than people in Mexico, then the um, price of the Big Mac will actually be higher in Switzerland than Mexico. Um, putting that aside, there's two ways of doing it, which is either to make that adjustment or not to make that adjustment. And then that allows you to compare that one item. The OECD and some other organizations make very complicated calculations on purchasing power parity 
which basically are like the Big Mac index, but involve large numbers of things. But then that exposes you to some risks, the same as when we talk about the Fed stuff, like when we talk about sticky inflation versus other kinds. If you choose a basket, why do you put some stuff in the basket? Why don't you put other stuff in the basket? You know, um, so like when we exclude food and energy, great idea in some ways, but there's some things that aren't very sticky in food and energy that we also exclude. Um, so it's just a different way of creating the basket. So obviously a single item of a Big Mac isn't that uh, informative, you know, compared to in theory having 30 different items that you could do that way. But it is a very clean item um, in that it shouldn't be affected by import uh, stuff. So like if China's deflating over time, like Howard Marks was talking about, where he's talking about durable goods driving the deflation from the 90s through the 2010s, uh, that shouldn't have an effect on the Big Mac and the Big Mac should keep going up, right? So it's an easy way to see if currencies are out of whack with each other. Now, theoretically, purchasing power parity um, is not the only issue. The other issues that you would expect have to do with the interest rates that are available in the different countries. So the rates of return that you could get in that currency. And then also um, inflation. So if your expectations for inflation um, would help you figure that out. In reality, I don't know that the markets are better at figuring out forward inflation relative to past. They don't seem to be. And they don't seem to be able to predict changes in, in interest rates either very well. So most likely the only other explanation that you would need is the relationship between currently, the relationship between interest rates really. So either current levels of inflation might be relevant and certainly current levels of interest are relevant. So um, you might want to switch out of a country where a switch. So the easiest example would be, let's say you have a country where the Big Mac index says Big Macs are cheap. Uh, and it also has a higher interest rate than the country that where it says Big Macs are expensive. That's pretty simple in saying you should be more inclined to be on the side where they're cheap and where you get paid to carry the, the asset. Do you ever think when you're looking at a bunch of different companies about how these businesses will perform in a higher inflationary environment, given that you had just said... As a backdrop, you do think we'll be in a structural, higher inflationary environment in the foreseeable future? Or do you think that's just sort of part of your investing process already from investing in high quality businesses that have pricing power, are able to continuously, you know, pass on the prices or raise the prices? Do you think about that much? Like, do you think, oh, I should go buy a, a business that has a ton of land? because right. they're going to benefit from inflation going forward. I mean, do you actively think like that as you're sifting through these companies? Sure. It's part of what I think about. Yeah. Um, so like for instance, we had a company that uh, we own stock in that bought some land and borrowed long-term for it. And uh, so I, you know, if, if it doesn't produce a profit, it's not a huge deal because at the fixed rate that they're getting at versus the value of the raw land, um, you know, they're, they're not really suffering in any way, uh, because of where interest rates are, the, the lender is really willing to accept collateral, um, that has a significantly higher return year to year, probably than what they're collecting as the lender in terms of how they're financing it. Right. So that would be totally different today if they wanted a variable cost, uh, variable um, uh, rate 
or if they wanted a, a rate done at higher interest levels. Um, so yeah, it affects things. I mean, I think before in the middle of COVID houses went up a bunch and people were worried about it and said, you know, should I not buy a house or something? And, uh, I, I didn't think, you know, house prices were uh, that attractive or anything, but the advantage for individuals if they want to do in the United States is, is a way that you can short, um, you know, currency basically you can, it's the only way in which you can transfer a huge portion of your balance sheet, um, into being short a currency for a very long period of time. So you're basically saying, I'd rather be in a real asset, own that, and then I'll pay you in uh, um, a nominal, right? So since the level was very low, certainly when it was when mortgage rates were below, say, 5% or something, then it just seems attractive. We don't know what will happen day to day and everything, but it just seems like a good diversification for people to do to borrow the money. Now you're borrowing and stuff and there's not great things about that. And you have to take on the taxes and the insurance and the CapEx and risks that the, that it could be an inflated bubble in the place that you happen to be in. But other than that, it's attractive simply from the perspective that you get to borrow that way. Cause normally you wouldn't be able to borrow for long-term in a fixed rate. And most countries people can't, I mean, I think in Denmark people do that in the United States and, and that's about it for being able to borrow for that long um, there's not many other places where individuals would be able to take so much of their balance sheet and do that with it. So, you know, it can be attractive and that would be kind of the only logic to me about why people would, would buy a house or something. Cause certainly houses aren't cheap versus people's wages and stuff. Do you have any thoughts in general on like the commercial real estate market? Um, I mean, there's two thoughts. One is that we have, that you have some office things. And so that's at a lot of risk, right? So, but that's not necessarily a huge part of it. Now there's some REITs that trade that are just office stuff. And so that would be why those would be at risk and stuff. The others, um, the main risk would just be cap rates, right? So like a lot of these things, they got very expensive. And so as they adjust to the fact that there's a shorter term money that has a real yield to it, uh, that uh, has a decent yield to it, then... I think that could bring down cap rates on that the same as it could on apartments, could on hotels, could on um, stocks and long-term bonds and everything. And, um, all, all, you know, those things have been overpriced basically. So, um, that's the concern. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you can always compare things to say like, what's the replacement cost of it and everything. If you get enough inflation, it's not the end of the world. If you get enough yield, it's not the end of the world. But the problem is just that you're starting from a very low yield sometimes. So like when people do some of the parts for the equity in many of these things, it's not attractive to me because I think they're probably way overvaluing it given that it has to be sold in the future and unless interest rates come down a lot and there's appetite like there was before, it's just too much. So yeah, I've looked at things that own a bunch of hotels. I've looked at things that own a bunch of real estate. Um, I had mentioned Seritage, right? And so that's a problem for the Seritage common stock. Um, it's, it's potentially a little problem for the preferred, but less of a problem, which is that they're liquidating, but obviously they'll get lower prices as they liquidate because interest rates will have come up. So if they had liquidated faster earlier in this pro in the, um, few years ago, maybe they would have done better, but that presents a bit of a risk. And then all these things like the equity usually has a lot of debt on it. So Seritage still has, I think they got down to 800 million in debt and then they have a little bit of the preferred, um, and so that relative to the common is quite large. So um, it's just like their their forecast for how much they'll liquidate at is very sensitive because there's sort of a leverage there, which is that the the um, 
the debt will get paid off at the same level first, then the preferred, and then you owning the common. And so the cap rate is pretty significant in those, right? And um, and what we see with some of these things, which is Seritage and probably some others, like Seritage is probably selling there, um, is selling some things first and then will be left with some things at the end. The danger would be, although they might be some of their best stuff late, they will have the lowest cap rates by the time they get to it. And so some of their biggest things will be their lowest cap rates at the end. Um, that happens in lots of markets, right? And we're seeing that. Venture capital, we're seeing that where people say, oh, there's just no market for it. Well, usually when there's no market for it, what that means is it needs to be marked down by huge amounts. Like in 2007, there was no market in early spring or something for mortgages. In late 2008, they're marked down by huge amounts. So it's just that takes a process to to do that. And so it's unclear, like when we talk about Silicon Valley's loans in that area and everything, what that is, because they might have been fine when there's, but then if there's a, an actual market for it, you try to sell it to someone. Um, you find out that the the mark would be really low, and that might be the case with some commercial real estate. So we've we spoke about preferreds on the last podcast, and then you just brought it up right now with Seritage. How do you assess preferreds typically? What are you looking for? How do you think about it? it? Seems like most investors just focus on the common stock of the business. So perhaps maybe you could take us through how yeah. you generally think about preferred stock. So. You should read uh, Security Analysis. Ben Graham goes into detail talking about preferreds. He doesn't generally like preferreds all that much. He also talks about things that convert into other things and all of that. But um, preferred stock has a few different purposes in uh, the United States and has a few different forms. And some of that is significant in terms of the risks that it has. Um, basically, you're going to have with any company, a variety of people with claims against the company to be paid off in a series. And that's what we're talking about when we're saying something's most senior to most junior. Um, so in the example of banks or something like that, right, the way we're thinking about it, whatever legally might be the description, is people are assuming that insured depositors are most senior. And so as long as the amount covers the insured depositors, they're fine. If not, then the FDIC has to take a loss to make whole the insured depositors. And so, for instance, in the case of um, Silicon Valley Bank, I think they estimated like they're going to take a loss of two and a half billion or something. So that is a loss on the fund. And then you have like the uninsured depositors, right? Which would be you, they don't have the insurance. And so you would expect that they're more at risk. Well, that same logic as you go down would for most companies involve banks, bondholders. You also have like different vendors and stuff. Um, and then you have uh, stock. And some companies have preferred stock and common stock. Generally, with the United States, the preferred stock is in real estate companies, um, banks, some other things. And the preferred stock is either cumulative or non-cumulative, which means that it either has to pay dividends after they've been in arrears or not. So uh, non-cumulative would mean that if they pay no dividend on the preferred stock in one quarter, they don't have to catch up in the next quarter. The really big success is the 100 baggers and preferred stocks. Buffett owned a preferred stock that he sold but would go on to go up 100 times are because they had stopped paying a dividend. They were cumulative, and then they had to pay that off, right? So, um, And then many of the preferreds have uh, a time when they might um, be called. 
they're less likely to have a time when they mature. It's more likely that they would be called. Um, so a lot of them might be perpetual in theory, but then actually they can be called by the company at the liquidation value. Often in the United States, the liquidation value is going to be $25. And if it was created as something like $1,000, it's going to be divided up into 40 chunks so that it can be $25. Um, so when you get to the liquidation, like Seritage will have, is pretty easy to calculate because Seritage owes the preferred $25. Um, there may be a thing that they give in terms of the yield when they put it out. So they'll indicate a yield at the value of $25. That was the yield. Um, instead of indicating a coupon amount of saying, which is in this case is a dividend amount um, of like uh, saying, okay, it pays one. So instead of saying it pays one every year, price it, they say it's $25 and 4%. Okay. So same idea, but of course it could fall to $12. It's not still a 4%, right? Now it's still paying the one on 12, right? So now, you know, it's over 8%. So, um, that's the way it works. And the basic idea is that in terms of the capital structure, you're going to be just senior to the common stock. So why would you look at it in something like Seritage or in a bank or something? The reason why is because they can't pay a dividend on the common stock unless they pay a dividend on the preferred stock. So the reason for why they can't pass, so it has preference there that way. It has preference in two respects. It has preference in terms of being entitled to dividends and it has preference in terms of being entitled to um, liquidation. So it would be liquidated first. It has to be paid off. Um, all the things I'm saying could technically be different if you read the exact description of every preferred. And so you should be careful with that as with any stock, as with any bond, whatever. There could be, you could add rights to it, take rights away from it, do different things. Um, so in the case of say Seritage, the advantages would be that it, um, collects a dividend of about 7% a year, um, paid, I believe in the case of Seritage, um, quarterly. And then it was 7% when it was issued. It's probably a little below 25. I don't know if it's 23 or something, but it's probably around there. So trading close to its liquidation value. So you can buy something and get about a 7% return until it liquidates. And then when it liquidates, you will get the capital gain, obviously, from whatever price you pay to uh, the, the $25 because it's going to be paid at $25 unless there's nothing left over for the common. So if there's nothing for the common and they say, oh, we're bankrupt at some point through this liquidation, then you may not get paid off or paid off in whole in the preferred. Um, my memory in the case of Seritage is the preferred is fairly small relative to the debt and the common. So it's a smaller kind of slice in there. Um, one obvious way that people value things or like the safety of things, like if you're, you know, just doing this, uh, thinking of, well, how safe is something is to estimate the market value of this securities in, uh, behind you, right? Cause if there's securities behind you, they assume that there's some value for them. So if Seritage common stock goes flying up to billions of dollars, and you know that you have claims that are much smaller than that, then people would start to think, oh, well, you know, if there's any value in the common, the common thinks it has a lot of value, then there must be 100% value in the preferred. Um, so, and then you could buy something like Seritage on the basis of like a, because it, it has announced it is liquidating on the basis of it being like an arbitrage type thing, right? In this case, you could, someone looking at it, I'm not saying this is exactly correct, but they could look at it and say, okay, I think the distributions will happen by, such and such a date, 
which means that this is actually a couple year long bond. And then I get 20, my $25. I have some capital gain in it and I get my 7%. And how do I compare that to other things like say a junk bond that's a few years out or something? Um, so they're saying like, I don't see this as something that will never mature. It is going to be called, you know, or in this case it's going to be paid off in liquidation um, within a, say a few years or something. Now, it might not if things go wrong, but obviously the company already put out, like, here's what we think we'll pay per share for the common. Once you're that far along in the process, then it usually means you're actually selling things off, trying to pay off the debt and liquidating this thing within the next few years. Um, and then, like, they calculate the order of the payments and stuff. So what they think probably is that um, it's quite short term and it has a nice enough yield, right? Um, and also except for the fact that it's tied to commercial real estate, right? It might be a different kind of risk. And so it could avoid, it could be good for diversifying purposes. Good. Like as a workout, it's the kind of thing that like a Buffett or something would buy as a, as a workout back in the days when he had the fund or Graham would buy, they would buy this kind of thing all the time, Graham Newman. So, um, but you're taking a little bit more risk because of course, treasuries, um, very short term treasuries, uh, are perfectly safe, but this yields a couple percent more than that, especially when you factor in the potential for capital gain. Um, so potential for capital gain is probably a large part of it, but it might not be the majority of it at this point. Um, and so you add those two together sort of to get your idea of what it'll be. Um, for the other things like the bank preferred stocks, there's a greater risk that they'll stay out indefinitely, which then makes a greater risk that the stock could go down because of um, interest rate increases and things like that. And so you have the problem of um, like the terms could be that it can call it at 25 a couple years from now, but it could leave it out forever. Well, if interest rates never drop below 5%, you know, especially on like a five year or whatever, this might be valued off of, I, I don't know what people would be using, but let's pretend that's it. Um, then they would say, okay, this is a problem because now you have something that has to keep dropping in price to make the yield equal to what other sorts of things are out there. Um, so you don't really know how long the life of the preferred will be. And that presents risks, opportunities, whatever, dealing with interest rates. Um, just like when we talk about like mortgages and how mortgages can be very hard to value that way because you have no idea how quickly they'll be paid back and stuff. And if rates suddenly went, if you gave someone a very low mortgage and then rates suddenly went up really high, you would assume that they wouldn't pay down. And so now you own something that's not being paid back to you very quickly and uh, suddenly has a much longer life than you expected. Have you come across any interesting preferreds in the market currently? I think you had said if you were to invest in bank stock, you would, you'd be looking at preferreds. And I remember even through COVID, right? It seems like in big moments of panic, uh, it seems like you start to mm -hmm. look at these preferred stocks. Right. So the preferred stocks have some potential attractiveness on some things. One, they may have a different, uh, one, they're less liquid, like they trade less often. Um, but two, they might also have a different base of people who buy and sell them for tax reasons mainly. Um, and it's possible that they would move more violently than they should. Um, there's not usually for individuals, there's not going to be a great advantage to getting a dividend. It depends. You have to talk to your tax attorney, um, to getting it as a dividend from a corporation rather than from getting interest in other ways. Like that would be more attractive to certain kinds of companies. Um, also individuals don't normally have an interest in reducing, say like their risk weighted 
sorts of things. So they they don't really care if uh, what how certain things are classified, right? So, for example, um, it's possible that um, Farmer Mac, let's say they had a preferred out. If Farmer Mac had a preferred out, um, that might be more attractive for certain institutions. I don't know enough about it to know that. But see, Farmer Mac is um, a government-sponsored um, company. And so it's possible that that's in a category in which owning the preferred stock might be more similar to, say, owning an obligation of a, a municipality or like um, the state of Texas or something, as opposed to if you bought a preferred stock in, um, in uh, you know, a, a company like Charles Schwab or something. You might not have the same um, safety from that. And, uh, and then also it might look safer when you put it on certain balance sheets and stuff and disclose it to people. Um, so as opposed to owning the common stock and then normally under normal conditions, it's going to be less volatile. Um, the most bank preferred stocks I've seen, I don't like. So that was one of my concerns about this crisis, right? That we had this, uh, supposedly there was this big crisis and everything is that with the exception of certain banks, I did not feel that the preferred stock reacted as if these banks were in danger of going under and stuff because, so we could talk about like why the common stock and the preferred stock might behave differently, why they should like rationally. Right. So unless they eliminate the dividend completely on the common stock, they're going to pay on the preferred stock. So the preferred stock though is severely at risk. It's why they're supposed to issue it um, in the case of like a bank failure. So it's not going to protect you. I believe signature Silicon Valley, um, had both of those had preferred stock out certainly first republic has many many uh series of preferred stock pack west has preferred stock and many of the other ones that we've talked about that aren't in such um serious or don't seem to be in such serious situation uh bank of hawaii uh frost uh, charles schwab they all have preferred stock um but in in some cases it dropped a lot and in others it did not if you bought it at the lowest tick, you could make a lot of money coming back from it, even in some extreme cases like First Republic and, and PacWest probably. I think PacWest dropped from high teens to like six in like a day or something, but then recovered to like 12 immediately. So I don't even know how many people could buy at those or whatever. And you are still at risk that, that you know, I mean, First Republic discontinued their dividend completely. So when that happens, the the um, preferred stock, even if it isn't wiped out, is going to trade flat. It's going to trade with no um, dividend expected on it. So you now own something that has no dividend until such a time as they bring it back. And when they bring it back, they don't have to make up for the past um, dividends they didn't pay. Um, so I think most of them are not that uh, not that cheap. Not cheap enough. So you have a lot that are um, paying in the six to seven and a half percent range, I would say, um, that are decent banks. Uh, and then where you have ones that I've seen that are outside of seven and a half percent, I would say they're deeply distressed banks, like currently undergoing crisis of some kind. Like we know that deposits have flowed out of them and stuff. Um, and so that would be trickier uh, to invest in those. Um, I'm not sure that the preferred stock is particularly attractive right now when you think about like what you can get in short-term treasury stuff, what people could get in junk bonds, um, all sorts of things like that. I just don't know that it's as attractive. Um, it's possible that 
the likelihood that you'd actually get wiped out is lower than I might imagine. Um, so that that's a big part of it. But there were cases where probably it may have dropped too much or something. So like I mentioned PacWest, I think there was one point where the common and the preferred were both down by like the same amount, like 60 or 70%, which is a bit... Um, there's lots of scenarios in which the common stock becomes worth a lot less and the preferred doesn't because if you have to recapitalize but you're able to get through this then you basically just water down your leverage and your return on equity goes down and you reposition your portfolio and everything like um, before it got really bad but before we knew it got really bad if someone just uh, like when we were talking about First Republic for instance and I was saying things about it um, a couple quarters ago or whatever or what analysts were saying the expectation was not that the bank would have a run on it and that it might fail, but that it would need to have significant um, raise capital and also significantly redo the way that its portfolio is organized, reducing the return on assets of the portfolio by shortening up what it was invested in. So like basically taking losses um, and then investing in higher yielding things today that you have, right? So like getting off the books, long-term things, selling them at two-thirds or whatever of what you paid for them, and then putting them into short-term stuff that would have a lot more yield. And then gradually you could come back out of that situation. But immediately you would have much lower earnings and much less available to pay out in dividends and whatever. And so you can imagine situations where the bank would earn low single digits or mid single digits or something return on equity for a while, which is very bad for a common stock that was trading at a big premium to book. But it, if this hadn't happened as badly as it did, then obviously you pay a dividend. And so if you pay a dividend, you're paying on the preferred. And so that makes sense. Um, the other really concerning thing is that just as these common stocks did not reflect this, as far as I can tell from looking at the trading pattern of the preferred, no one was seriously considering this at these banks. The preferred should have declined a lot and given us some signal, and it did nothing. Um, it came as a complete surprise to the uh, equity markets, to people who owned the securities in these banks. Yeah, I have it pulled up right here, and it looks like at one point the preferred was down about 65%, and at the same time, the common stock of PacWest was down 53%. So the preferred for a little while there, a little bit there. Um, was down a good amount more than the actual equity. Mm -hmm. And at this point, has the preferred recovered higher than the um, common or what's happened? It has, yeah. Now the preferred is down 47%, where the common is down 58%. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, my issue with the... So the reason why I said the thing about the preferred stock is basically, I think in my last, uh, last podcast or whatever, I got some emails back from people that I think they may have made that my comments may made me feel like I was saying, made them feel like I was saying there's a higher risk of banks failing than, um, than I think that there is. However, what I th think um, I should have said more is like a lot of these were not super cheap going into this. So yes, there was a dip, but that doesn't mean that you got to super cheap places. So like when people ask me about frost, the truth is frost after it came down in price, it's not that it's unattractive, but to me, it's at about the same sort of PE and stuff as in 2015 when rates were at nothing. So would I rather have it when rates are at nothing and I know they can either stay the same or go up, 
or would I rather take the risk now in buying something like this where rates could come down? And probably um, I, I liked it better before. Um, that, like Frost had dropped a bit when we wrote it up, but basically I think the reason is there's a big dip now, so it seems cheaper and it's more exciting. Um, mm -hmm. It is actually cheaper on like price to earnings, but it has more deposits than it really needs to. Like I've said about all of the bank, not just needs to, than it really should have. And so if you, if you kind of reduce their earnings by about 25% or so in the sense of like shrink their balance sheet for all these banks, because like I said, deposits are about 1.3 times higher relative to GDP than is normal. So to offset that, you just do 0 0.75 times today's balance sheet. And that I think is more the balance sheet that these banks should have. Um, and if you do that, then it's somewhat cheap, but it's not as cheap. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with it, but it's just priced this way in fairly normal times or however you want to call it. Like the Fed funds at five is maybe a little high. Maybe it's normal, maybe it's a little high, whatever. I don't know. I kind of know that zero is more out of line with reality than five. And so just there's more, the it's much more favorable risk or reward there was back then than I think there is now. Um, but that's just like buying anything, you know, if someone take, brings me a home builder and says that three times earnings, that's great. But you know, we think that the earnings will come down. And so we have to kind of factor in how much will they come down? I kind of rather buy at three times earnings when it's not a good market for housing, then I'd be really excited about the stock, right? Same thing here. You had said that Ben Graham in security analysis did not like preferreds investing in preferreds. Why was that? Yeah. Well, I don't like them either. Um, I don't think they're, I mean, look, we have much bigger sins now than then. Um, I don't think they're a great deal for the holders generally. And, um, you know, so I think it's especially, and, and in some ways it's gotten worse now. Um, and I don't want to confuse people about that. These things aren't, Many of the ones we're talking about that are the most attractively priced are non-cumulative, right? So they don't have to pay, make up for the fact. So if they have a 2008 type experience and they decide not to pay dividends for, for 10 years, they don't have to make up for that, which is a bit of an issue. Two, they have optionality on you in terms of that they can take you out at 25 eventually. Now, they can't take you out at just a premium over whatever the market value is at any time or something. So it's not some crazy thing, but it is that... They ha and and many of them are perpetual. So what that means is that perpetual preferred stock that can be called means that they can call it in a few years if you're they decide that you're getting too good a deal versus current in versus the interest rates that exist in a few years. Um, but the reverse is not true. You can't say, oh well, I'd like my twenty five dollars back now. You know. So if interest rates go up a lot they go from five percent fed funds to ten you can't say oh please make me whole on my um purchase here i'm entitled to 25 and it's not just like you can never say that because there's no period at which they have to um call them so it's just i don't know it's the kind of thing that sometimes i worry about and so you have to do different calculations about it and what you think um that also complicates things on the preferred because actually there was a major move in interest rates at the same time that this banking thing happened and actually that has a, should have an impact on preferred stock like so I, I think over time some of this preferred stock had come down in price but i would attribute that 
to interest rate changes, right? Uh, I'm saying that there was no warning because I can co- do one preferred stock against another, one common against another to see that there's not a warning that some financial institutions are at greater risk than others. However, all the preferred stock was trading down somewhat as the interest rates rose um, because it has to factor that into you know the price. When you had said Buffett sold a preferred stock that went up 100x, are you talking about city services? That example he gave at the yeah. annual meeting a few years ago. Yeah. That was pretty funny. Yeah, it's famously the first stock he ever bought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. City services preferred, yeah. So something that I thought was interesting was Jay Powell was talking about how Silicon Valley Bank was the quickest bank run uh, they've ever seen. And that perhaps there will be regulation on the back end uh, that could potentially slow it in the future. I mean, I guess if you mm-hmm. read between the lines, put a limit on how uh, how quickly people can withdraw capital. And when I heard that, I thought that was pretty interesting. So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on that. I mean, does that make a case for some of these banks, their deposits on the back end of this actually becoming a little bit more sticky because of regulation? I mean, I know it's purely speculation at this point, but that did catch my ear when he said that. Yeah, I don't know what he means by that exactly. Um, in the financial crisis, they guaranteed transaction accounts, and you could, it wouldn't be too difficult to guarantee transactions accounts. Um, the other thing is that probably the the biggest issue, be biggest immediate issue, I would guess, with banks like what happened here, is that the the Fed and others um, did. Uh, when I say others, I mean the Federal Home Loan Bank, but they're going to claim that this isn't their job. But um, they did not act quickly and in huge scale to be like a lender of last resort or whatever. Um, And so providing huge amounts of liquidity immediately um, could help. I mean, that's how you stop a run is by you take um, good collateral and you provide huge amounts of immediate liquidity for it. So, um, and that could be effective in many cases. So they just aren't able to act that quickly for one. For two, I don't know how they can force management to do it if management believes that they don't need to do it. So that's another issue. Um, These aren't shocking numbers and they're kind of expected in some cases, right? So like, um, but it was a problem. So for instance, First Republic, a group of banks supposedly tried to rescue them. It's a little, I don't know the story behind it because it's a little weird. They deposited money, um, and not in particularly large amounts uh, for each bank doing it. And the amount that they deposited was too small. So um, I believe they deposited thirty billion. First Republic to into First Republic. First Republic had increased their deposits um, by about eighty billion or more. I don't know if it was eighty, ninety-five, something like that, from the time of the beginning of COVID till then. So an outflow of just the d- deposits that had been there since. COVID to then um, would have been more than what the banks were depositing. Um, And then added to that, obviously, is that it seemed like they were saying the affected banks, it's debatable what that meant and stuff. But it it certainly seemed to some people that the government, and especially if they were doing this, uh, that they had talked to these banks at the time they did this, was saying, we are guaranteeing um, 
deposits in First Republic, uninsured deposits, but not in other banks. So um, certainly they were guaranteeing in the case of Silicon Valley and Signature, but I think it's debatable that they were also signaling they were doing in First Republic. If that's true, then that's not much of a signal from the banks. We're putting our money in for a few months in the form of deposits, and we think those deposits are safe, you know, um, instead of raising capital. So um, a lot of banks didn't raise capital and stuff, but I don't know that they really need capital. What they needed is um, liquidity, and they could have it provided for them. So um, a lot of them could have tapped the Federal Home Loan Bank earlier and for longer periods of time and stuff. So some of these banks were eligible to borrow for quite a long time at a fixed rate. Certainly they could have borrowed for a year, gotten advance for a year on stuff that they had. Um, and, you know, that would have helped, obviously, by switching some of their liabilities that way um, and, and getting um, cash for it. Uh, the, the issue is really like... Um, like if we take the example that I just gave, um, banks like Silicon Valley and First Republic and stuff grew their deposits by a lot during COVID and added very little to short-term holdings of things. Um, I mentioned Frost. I think their balance sheet grew, I don't know, 25, 30%, you know, 30% or something more than it probably should have. But if we say that they grew maybe $9 billion in in deposits, I would think are kind of that people don't really want to hold there in the case of Frost. Um, I think they grew cash $6 billion. So that's pretty good in terms of covering it that way and being prepared for it. Um, some of these other banks grew nothing to cash. Let's look at First Republic, for instance. Um, you could do the quarterly, probably, but we can also do annual using 2019 as the... Yeah. So what's the beginning? June is... We're in COVID in June 2020. So their cash went up down from tw from June to December. Uh, from, yeah. I'm sorry, from June 2020 to December 2022. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so from 2020 was at 3 billion, June 2022, uh, 6.2 billion. Deposits went from 98.5 billion to 165.6 billion. Right, so if anything, the banks only put in half of what would have be needed just to get back to the levels of June 2020. Uh, which would just mean that anyone who put their money in during COVID, um, taking their money out, uh, would have caused a problem with the bank. Now, we have some details on that, and I think on some days they were having outflows that were larger, so obviously there was some panic or some people beyond that. But it's just a reversal of a lot of flows that you had there anyway, so like the amount was not huge that you needed to add. Uh, it was not huge relative to the amount you needed to add. The banks didn't seem to be adding enough. So... This had to been like what I don't know, middle to the beginning, beginning to middle of 2022. You were saying that you believe 2022 could be the first year where deposits uh, basically will shrink year over year. What tipped you off to that? Yeah. Why were you thinking that that was something that was already on your radar? We were talking on the podcast. Uh, what led you to believe that? Well, I watched certain things like money supply growth anyway, so it's just I would have seen that. Um, then the Fed talking about it, you can see the Fed's balance sheet, um, and you can also just see other banks. Um, some of these are not even, the United States is not necessarily the most severe in some cases. UBS, which just um, uh, merged with Credit Suisse, you know. Um, if you look, UBS actually had significant deposit outflows. Actually, in other times and stuff, it would be a cause of concern for a bank. So they merged a bank that had outflow issues into a 
bank that had much worse outflow issues. Maybe Credit Suisse was losing 40% of their deposits instantly. And, you know, UBS was slowly losing seven or something. But um, they both, you know, especially when you adjust, try to adjust for things like um, U.S. dollar uh, value, adjusted for inflation, whatever, trying to get a sense of what are the real deposit things, really it, it, it declined. Um, and so that's just something that's been happening. Uh, there, virtually all banks have experienced in the last quarter of the last year, I would say, you know. And there is a possibility that that had something to do with this. I'm not 100% sure. I don't think it's a total accident that these happened around the time that banks would have filed their 10Ks. So it is possible that there was some effort not to put some stuff in the 10K. Like, let's wait and let's fight. Like, if we're going to do something that's going to require um, disclosure of really scary things and stuff, uh, recapitalize, recapitalizing things, selling things, whatever. Let's let's do that. So who knows? It depends on how it signals. I mean, there's a bank. Um, I saw a bank that sold some uh, stuff and, and things, and I was quite happy that they did that before the end of the year and everything. They had to book a loss on it and everything. Some people might take that as a signal. Well, if they were willing to take a hit to their earnings and everything, that's really bad, you know. So to one person, it's a signal that this is good, that they're taking this seriously. To someone else, it can be a signal that it's it's bad. But yeah, I mean, I think they, some of these banks may will find out when they you know do more reporting on them and stuff, but I wouldn't be surprised if they would have liked to have pushed off dealing with an issue for like another month or something because of what time it was to file what things and stuff. They'd, they'd probably rather do it right after that than do it at the end of a reporting period. Mm -hmm. So UBS, uh, as I'm sure a lot of people know, they agreed to buy Credit Suisse for more than $3 billion. I believe the actual merger price is $3.2 billion. Um, the Swiss government said it would provide more than $9 billion to backstop some losses that UBS may occur by taking over Credit Suisse. The Swiss National Bank also provided more than $100 billion of liquidity to UBS to help facilitate the deal. So, um, 166 year old bank, Jeff, uh, is now mm -hmm. merging with, um, one of their biggest rivals, uh, at a price 3.2 billion It's currently trading the market at 3.5 billion. Jeff, we always talk about merger arbitrage. What about the opposite of buying? What do you think? You think you, you shorted well, into it? Is... Have you ever heard of people doing that? Make a little quick nine. No, to 10%? I would not. <laughs> I would not do that for a few reasons. Um, mm -hmm. One, probably it's in their interest to agree to a higher price. That is, if if Credit Suisse wanted to, they could probably force UBS to take a higher price. They're probably in a similar situation to Bayer and J.P. Morgan. And remember, you have to be careful about that because Bayer ended up getting five times more money from J.P. Morgan. But um, the issue is that the harm to another bank could be greater than the price that you have to pay to take it over. The equity is also an insignificant part of the deal. So you're taking on a huge amount of liabilities and stuff here. I don't know. Credit Suisse might've been a $500 billion thing or something, you know, like um, UBS. They, they do like assets under management stuff included with these banks. But I would say my memory is Credit Suisse is like 500 billion or something in terms of um, it's actual banking stuff. And, and UBS might be a, a twice that or something like 1.1 trillion um do we have any information on their size yeah i mean the total liabilities here are what that's what it says it says 500 some billion 521 um 
Yeah, but what was the year before, uh, quarter before? 674. And then before that, 702. Yeah, and before that, 747. And then before that, yeah. I mean, yeah. it went from, to put in perspective, let's say a high point of uh, $873 billion in December of 2020 uh, to now $521 billion and just uh, went mean, down. I think in total assets, they were over $900 billion in 2020. Is that right? Yep, 921 and now they're five hundred some, or they, or they're probably much smaller if they stepped in here. So, big shrinkage, and I'm not sure how things could survive that. So, um, yeah. So they could possibly. I mean, the government might not basically let them, and they might not have a willingness to fight on that. But certainly, like Bear should have, from a purely selfish perspective, fought for a higher price and probably could have gotten a higher price from J.P. Morgan. Um, but the the trade-off is you say, well, instead, we're going to file for bankruptcy and stuff. Um, so I don't think most people are willing to do that. And so that's how you're able to do this. If, if the government says that you're going to do this and that your alternative is filing for bankruptcy, then they can take you out at a different price. But, I mean, the reported price was like $1 billion at first and then yeah. went up throughout the day. So it's probably in negotiations it went up, yeah. Um, it's possible they could get a higher price, but I'm not aware of reasons why they would. Do you have any thoughts on Credit Suisse merging with UBS in general? We spent some time going over Credit Suisse and we talked about their lack of return on equity and the problems that they've had. Any general thoughts about this happening? Well, I looked at Credit Suisse last year because they were supposed to split something off. And I decided that it was unlikely that they would, you know, like actually be able to go through with that, that they, they would fall apart before then or they wouldn't be able to separate out the pieces or whatever. So I read their annual report. Um, and you know, they had issues. Um, there were a few things in it that concerned me a lot and we'll see. Um, there's particular stuff with how they moved to classifying some stuff that'll be interesting. And I think part of this deal will be how they do from banking stuff versus asset management stuff. And there may have been some stuff stuffed into a different part of the business than it really is in. That was my impression from reading the annual report was one of the concerns possibly. Um, and so we'll see if there's arguing over that later because they probably want to like wind down an investment banking aspect to it. But I have a suspicion that what Credit Suisse did is they took some stuff that's really investment banking and shoved it in a different part of the bank in terms of at least how they report it in the annual report. I don't know that, but there's some footnotes and stuff that make me think that. So um, that would have made it more difficult. Um, they were doing a lot of restructuring stuff. And so I think they're doing some, uh, taking some losses that this helped with that of like, oh, it's all part of the restructuring, you know? Um, I don't know anything else except obviously this is like why you don't want to have a highly concentrated banking thing. You know, in the United States, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature and everything fail, First Republic and Danger, whatever. Not that big a deal. Um, here, you have one institution now uh, that is huge versus the government. And so, I mean, at some point, there will be a review by credit rating agencies uh, to talk about Switzerland's credit rating. Um, because the, the thing that they would list as the main risk, Switzerland's a AAA credit. Um, it's probably not as safe as other AAA credits now. And there'll be some discussion of the fact that you have a banking sector that's too big and you have a single institution that's too big versus the size of the government. So, um, 
oh, we said Credit Suisse in total assets, I think, had at its peak in 2020 had 900, over 900 billion, right? Yep. Um, I believe Swiss GDP is maybe 800 billion. It's not big. So uh, I think their financial sector will be five times the size or something of their um, GDP, which is very big. There are many countries where it's one fifth that size. And uh, it's basically guaranteeing this stuff. And it's in a lot of trouble, the institution that's been merged together. So it reflects mostly on that, just like how hard this will be for the combined company. And I think how hard it will be for Switzerland and what Switzerland does about it. Um, this is why you want a lot of banks and a lot of diversity and stuff. But, you know, it's a problem in some places. So most countries don't allow other countries to come in and buy their banks and stuff. And so if you keep concentrating over time, you can end up with this problem and it can be an issue for countries like Switzerland or Belgium or whatever that aren't that big and that have gone and concentrated um, amount of banks. So, um, cause it's always mentioned people say like, well, wouldn't the United States be better off if it was more like Canada or Australia mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, the risky run is like what happened in Ireland where like, you know, they had a handful of banks and they failed and what do you do? Put them together, do whatever. You have the same thing happen in Switzerland where basically the government is now guaranteeing something that's way too big versus it. So, um, you know, at some point someone will notice that and say, uh, I don't know. This is, they, it scores well on most of the things of a sovereign credit, but this is a pretty big issue. And, you know, it only needs to be one issue. Like we talked about where it's the weakest link. That's what matters. You can be very strong on other things. If, if fundamentally Switzerland is got, you know, a financial guarantees that they're making implicitly, um, that is way too big versus the size of the government's ability to tax and, and spend and stuff. Um, yeah, that's the only long-term fallout I see from this. So about a month ago, we recorded a podcast where we went over 13 Fs and we went over mm -hmm. Berkshire's in particular on how they sold, I believe, all the bank exposure they had other than yeah. U.S. Bank and Bank of America. Bank of so my and they question, sold a lot of U.S. Bank. Yeah. So my question to you is, yeah. I mean, good timing. I mean, foreseeable all of this. Is there, even if that wasn't Buffett, is that Buffett just talking with the other managers? Oh, was, no, no, no. That was, that was Buffett. Wow. The banks were Buffett. Buffett mm -hmm. owned the banks. So. Um, just good yeah. timing? I think. No, I think he probably saw stuff. I mean, this is interesting. Powell said something about this at the press conference. He said that the financial conditions um, indicators, and these are very weird things like that they have that they make up from a bunch of different variables and they weight them and everything, but financial conditions things have not shown much tightening, um, even since the, the this crisis happened with these bank failures. And um, they did, certainly didn't show much tightening last year when it felt like there was significant tightening in some financial conditions. Certainly if you read the things of each bank, there seemed like it, like there were little hints all over the place about stuff. So certainly felt tighter to us. Um, and it's not just because we deal in equities and stuff. I just think that's the reality. Um, and yet it's not picked up by these things. So that's interesting. Um, you know, like if you read the transcript of, First Republic or uh, Frost or whatever, or we talk about Service First, right? So Service First, their correspondent banking, 
deposits were pulled from that faster than they ever expected. Frost had some very small thing where they pointed out that some people were preferring to have repos with them. Um, they didn't make a big deal of it and stuff, but it is interesting. Um, so it's collateralized instead of holding the depo uh, deposits. Um, so, you know, it's there's nothing wrong with that, but that would indicate some um, concern among banks, financial institutions probably. Can you explain about, that? Um, yeah, so uh, it just means that there would be collateral backing it, you know, and so that they were, it's preferring a slightly safer way of having their money on deposit. You know, so um, as an example, like normally when you, do, so when normally when you deposit money with a bank or something, right, you're not saying that I need proof that you have something there. Um, but if you're dealing with someone and you say that I need you to give me collateral, um, then that's a different story. Now it's this normal, but certainly in certain boom times and stuff, they've people have not cared about that. So, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, you're always safer that way. And certainly Buffett's concerned about that fact. Um, that reflects, you know, concern about like sh very short term, um, funding of stuff. Right. So, um, and I think we saw deposits go down in almost every bank, you know, um, bank after bank. Even banks that had grown deposits quite a lot year over year saw 1% or more decline in the last quarter. Um, I think it may be weighting into other stuff, the financial conditions thing. So, for instance, CNI lending expanded still at the time that deposits contracted. So, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, the equity market's also pretty, like, I know it doesn't feel this way to people, but it's pretty calm mm -hmm. um, considering what's happened. You know, the market was down a huge amount last year. You've had big increases in interest rates, and then you had a bunch of bank failures and stuff, and the market has been not insanely volatile and somewhat upward, as we talked about at the beginning of this, uh, you know, with the S&P's returns year to date. So some of these financial condition things might factor in more equity things and stuff. Um, and credit spreads on some st stuff for traded things of bonds and things seem fine. Um, in some cases, credit standards have probably changed a bit. There seems to have been an extreme tightening in auto, but like just extreme in terms of like how fast it happened. But you know, um, so it would be harder to get an auto loan right now if you were like a CarMart type customer. Is this the call before the storm? I don't know. I mean, there's some things that are... So, in terms of behavior of stocks, they did do a few things that they tend to only do when things are about to implode. Um, so, for instance, you had terrible performance by banks, stocks, bank stocks on certain days, at the same time that tech was up. As far as I know, the only time there's been anything like that in terms of how big the difference is in performance between the two was in uh, 2008 on certain days in 2008 and the reverse the banks way outperforming the tech stocks and stuff is a 2009 phenomena almost exclusively um so that's interesting um and you had a lot of you know your basic safety stuff whatever that is so like people buying stocks that are um the biggest instead of the smaller ones right you saw a lot of that um so I, I don't know what any of that means. 
certainly there's, uh, if you look in, like we said, the preferred stock, but also just other things, people don't seem to be overly concerned about banks failing and stuff. So, um, I'm not sure that it's, you know, a, such a major concern that people have. Um, my concern is more price like we've talked about. Mm. So it's just the price of these things makes it, it's not that the, that there's big risks in it, but when your price is so high, it doesn't take a lot of risk to readjust that. Even when I mentioned things like the preferred stock, you know, it doesn't take much of a rumor to make it go down a lot in price. If it's trading pretty close to what reputable sorts of ways of getting yield are, you know? So obviously if the preferred stock is at a 10% yield, then it's pricing in a lot of stuff, but some of these were at closer to six um, and it's not pricing in much considering what was happening. Do you think Buffett is busy through all this? Somebody posted a, um, a chart of all the private jets flying to Omaha because you know how you could track the, the, the jets and people oh. were speculating it's the regional banks flying in there to talk to Buffett. I'm sure some people would talk to him about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's talked before about FDIC, that FDI, that the private sector could provide pricing for them for FDIC. And that's, that's true. So, you know, he's, he has definitely said before, like, you know, we could have a program to guarantee all deposits or something if you did that. Um, just as after the Texas storms and stuff, uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, um, you know, said there could be a private sector solution to this. So there may be things like that. I'm sure he's talking to people in government and stuff. Um, and probably to, to possibly to banks that want bailing out but I mean he's in Bank of America and American Express and um, you know he doesn't want to be a bank holding company so we'll see but it, you know I'm not sure what he would do he also sold some of the stocks right before this so I don't know if we'll see an immediate reversal on that like that he would sell uh, US Bank Corp and what bank of new york or do mm -hmm. you have which ones he sold recently because we can get that in the data yeah we could pull it up data roma we'll go to warren buffett let's see i just thought it was really interesting timing i mean i feel like we record this podcast on the 13fs months ago but it literally was like three podcasts mm -hmm. ago that we were talking about this uh, reduced Bank of New York Mellon. Um, let's see what else. Reduced the Taiwan Semiconductor. That was another big one. Sold out ninety one percent. I mean, assuming maybe he continued to sell if it's Buffett, probably uh, mm -hmm. U.S. Bank Corp. Yeah. Yeah, and he had already eliminated others before. So, like we said, he basically got out completely, and we don't know what he sold since then. But he's basically gotten out completely of banks other than American Express and um bank of america i do not believe he's ally i could be wrong though on that i just don't think that ally is buffett's investment mm -hmm. yeah so he's been selling it down for the past couple of quarters yeah and not selling everything else it's not like he's selling his overall portfolio so there's some reason why he was doing that um you know i i've said that probably the main reason is to just focus on the banks that he has um i do think that it's possible. I, I don't know how much he'll tell us about that, that he was concerned about some things, but yeah, I don't think it's an unreasonable thing to eliminate those banks that you like less or that you can't put as much in when we had this kind of stuff going on, mm -hmm. um, you know, not going on yet, 
but having going on how high the interest rate um, increases were and what the balance sheets of these banks look like. Certainly he's reading the balance sheets of them and stuff and knows what they look like. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So probably one of the most common questions we'll get on the back end of this uh, is something, a version of this that somebody had emailed in. First, I want to say that I haven't studied Silicon Valley Bank carefully, but it seems to me that their deposits were of above average quality. They had a good amount in non-interest deposit with business accounts, though at a slightly higher non-interest cost. The question is, if SVB did not have a run on their deposit, could they have survived? I'm just considering other potential outcomes, such as an extended period of depressed earnings due to the long maturity securities, or would they be insolvent in any case? Also on a related topic, if SVB had originated their own loans and therefore could record them at cost instead of market, could that have kept them solvent and have avoided a run on the bank? Question mark. I know the economics of the situations are the same, but might many thrifts be insolvent if they had to record their loans on a mark-to-market basis? Question mark. So really, there's two questions there. Yeah, so it's a very good point. Um, that's true. They are the same, basically, whether you're making them as loans or... Um, as uh, securities. Um, the terms are usually a bit different in that I'd say there are some banks that have loans that are as long duration as the securities, but most do not. Um, so it's more common to have something that say reprices in five years and is a 15 year loan or something than in, in their long-term loans than to have like, you know, very long-term treasuries that actually uh, mature in one payment at the end there. Um, so the other thing is then the mix of it. Um, if you have a lot of loans, then you should have short-term securities probably. And if you have a lot of short-term loans, then it's safer to have more longer-term securities, obviously. And so it depends on what it is. So like when we talk about banks, like um, some regional banks do a lot of C&I lending, which is not going to be ever as long-term. Um, and certainly it's going to float a lot more. Uh, so... The issues here, well, so this is part of it. So it seems to me that their deposits, I'm quoting here, were of above average quality. They had a good amount in non-interest deposits with business accounts, though at a slightly higher non-interest cost. Okay. Um, this is the debate, right? Is like, um, is that good to have those kinds of deposits or is it bad? Uh, from a financial perspective, it's good. And this is the complicating issue, right? I think it's good to have um, low-cost demand deposits um, and over the uninsured amounts to the extent that it allows you to invest in very conservative things and very short-term. The danger, which sounds good to people, of, well, why don't they borrow for longer, right? So like I said, the uh, federal home loan um, banks, you could go to different websites. There's 11 of them around the country. Some of them list their rates and stuff. So you can get some idea of what they are and how long the advances and stuff. Um, but if you factor that in for like making uh, a mortgage or whatever, um, the spreads that you would need. So you'd have to be borrowing at a pretty high percentage right now. Let's say you're borrowing at, you know, 5% or whatever for uh, a year or I don't know what the longest is right now. It might be two or it might be five. Um, that it's the cheapest, I should say. Um, then 
if you replace that, so like this is First Republic as an example of this, is everyone saying First Republic is fine and everything, but the argument is like in the short run, we weren't okay, but in the long run, we are perfectly fine, is what these will argue. It's more like in the short run, we weren't okay. In the medium term, we would be okay. But in the very long term, we wouldn't be okay. And the reason for that is if rates don't come down and you try to replace the liabilities that you have at some place like First Republic, um, the yield on your assets is below the yield on your liabilities. And, and this is the big, big part of it, um, the money supply contraction. So I've said this before and I don't, I've said it a lot, but I don't think it is like, um, it's not something that maybe uh, I've done a good job of putting in people's minds as like highlighting it. The duration that you have as an insurer or a bank or whatever matters a great deal. However, so does your growth rate. The growth rate is very, very important. And this is an issue that we're seeing right now. If your growth rate slows down, then what you have is a static balance sheet. And a static balance sheet is very different than a balance sheet that's dynamically um, incorporating new higher rates into it or new lower rates. And so the question, so they have here, they say the question is if, if SVB did not have a run on their deposits, could they have survived? This is the big debate. Um, and it's also why I think maybe we should have a different word for bank failure or what. Because the reason you would take over a bank like SVB is that question. If they did not have a run. Well, actually, their deposits were flowing out anyway before the run. We just talked about that with other banks. Uh, even very good banks are having some deposit outflows. If the outflows never stop, you're running a Ponzi scheme. That's why you shut down the banks is because you're saying, well, otherwise we're having a problem where we're going to have people putting their money in some people, even though there's outflow, some people are putting it in, some people are taking it out. And in essence, the people who are taking it out are going to be okay. And the people who are putting it in are not going to be okay. And so the government is allowing that to happen. The, the purpose of doing this, whether it's banks, insurers, whatever, um, the argument for why it's regulated by the government, and everything is, is almost a fraud type argument of just saying, we don't want people to, promise that they will do something that they cannot do and on that promise to get cash flow from it because that is what a Ponzi scheme is. Um, the, the problem is that to deal with the cash flow issue and stuff, they can bring in more deposits, but they actually bring in deposits that they can't pay out because it no longer economically makes sense of what they're doing. Now, this all gets fixed if you know interest rates change or if the bank suddenly starts growing again. A very logical thing is that SVB would have thought, oh, and actually, we know this. In both the case of SBB and First Republic, they they said some stuff that was very worrying, which is like, they said, oh, the we expect the first half of the year to be bad, and like we have these things in where we these projections, but the back half of the year is going to be. So they have this inflection going on in their minds that somehow venture capital is going to get better, that somehow interest rates are going to be different. Um, we just have to get over this patch here. And if that works out, then maybe, yeah, you could keep going. But if it doesn't, then you can't. And um, it's just that under the same conditions, they would have a problem. So the argue, And that's basically what a run, to some extent, the run is just the realization that the way this is organized now can't work. But 
of course you could have the argument, what if you suddenly increased money supply? What if you suddenly, you know, can you stop this from happening? Yeah, like if there was something to to get deposits flowing back in, if the bank could suddenly start growing as fast as they had been in the beginning of COVID, then obviously you can work through your problems. Um, If you invest the right way and you're growing fast, then you can quickly fix the problem. However, if you're not, then you can't. It's the same as like, um, let's imagine our fund or something, right? Say we invest in something illiquid, okay? And it turns out that it's not good or we could never sell it or whatever. You know, we, we buy illiquid stocks all the time. And let's say it's 20% of the portfolio. Okay. Well, if we raise the value of the portfolio next year, uh, again, so we raise just as much as we did to start it, this is now down to a 10% thing. Then, you know, we don't, because we're not adding or taking away from it. If it happens again, it's down to 5%. We never have to sell the stock if we keep getting people giving us money. But it becomes a problem as soon as people just stop adding more than they take away. And then it becomes a very big problem if people start taking away more than they were adding. But just the fact of going from very fast growth to leveling off is a huge problem. So, I mean, we've talked about this behind the scenes. I think I've talked to some people about it more, but you and I, Andrew, um, at one time you said something about a bank that you said like, oh, it grew however much in the quarter. And I hadn't seen the reports yet on that. And I had a reaction. You were shocked. And you were like, is that good or bad? (laughs) Yeah. Is that good? This was during COVID times, basically. Um, the recovery coming out of COVID. I was shocked that a bank would grow that fast in one quarter. Um, but my reaction was basically, well, it's good at first and then it's bad. Um, you know, and that's been what I've been saying a lot to investors and stuff. Like, oh, is this great for banks? Is this not? It's good at first and then it's not. And that's what happened to all these banks. In early 2020, it was good. At Later, it was not good. And at different parts of the economy, it happened f- faster. Um Probably like Silicon Valley Bank, I'd have to see. But venture capital stuff, probably the second half of 2021. You know, so so first, so about mid-2020 is great. End of 2021 is bad. It was that fast that it changed in like... Um, and then so it's been going on since then for a long time. And these are not surprising um, uh, descriptions. Um, so like... Uh, in terms of um, these are not things that came out of left field. They are exactly what the banks warned about, you know, that this is what they're exposed to and everything. Um, I have pack West's 10 K. Um, so I will read you part of it because this is the kind of thing that you could get and be aware of the risks because sometimes they spell out exactly what the risks are, even if it doesn't mean that they move on those risks immediately. So in the case of pack West, they said, Part of our, this is the last risk they list. Part of our strategy is focused on providing banking products and credit to entrepreneurial and venture-backed businesses, including companies that receive financial support from sophisticated investors, including venture capital or private equity firms and corporate investors. Okay. This is the part where they start to discuss the size of the risk. We derive a significant portion of deposits, including large deposits from these companies and provide them with loans as well as other banking products and services. Venture deposits totaled 33% of our total deposits at December 31st, 2022. Okay. Then this is where it starts to get concerning. However, these deposits are more volatile than our other deposits as reflected in the surge in venture backing banking deposits starting in mid-2020 driven by COVID-19 pandemic-related monetary easing policies followed by a decline in deposits starting in the first quarter of 2022 
due to monetary tightening. A significant decline in deposits could have a material adverse effect, very bad words, on our cost of borrowing and liquidity position. In many cases, our credit decisions are based on our analysis of the likelihood that our venture-backed borrowers will receive additional rounds of equity capital from investors. So, in essence, the bank is saying if the market for venture capital closes, if it's if just there is not transactions, here's the what the risk of that, that poses to our liquidity. Right? Mm-hmm. And so um that's part of the thing that's a little complicated here is um, why hasn't someone bought, uh, you know, so some of these banks people have, uh, have bought, uh, you know, um, there have been offers to, you know, the FDIC normally when we talk about a failure takes over the bank and then sometimes it has to keep some stuff in the bridge bank and stuff. But basically it sells off the bank, the franchise, and that's what would happen to Signature in Silicon Valley. There are two reasons right now why people wouldn't, bail out a bank, uh, you know, uh, buy a bank um, in terms of like private sector doing this. One is the securities we talked about where they have to realize the loss, right? The other one is the possibility that you have in the case of something like Silicon Valley or PacWest, um, loans and also potential relationships that um, don't yet reflect current conditions in that the market is not functioning very well there is some aspect of that even in the securities because obviously if we think about this um why are all these bonds trading at where they're trading at you know um the banks aren't selling them uh you know like like there's a abnormal demand for holding certain securities because they don't want to mark them down so the stuff that's held to maturity that's long term maybe the market for it isn't exactly where they're holding it at. Uh, I mean, maybe the market isn't even what it's at. They're holding a totally different level, but if they dumped it on the market, it would look different. Um, But those are very big markets and stuff. Uh, Certainly, um, these loans are not, and they're held by a small number of banks, and they could be holding them at unrealistic values. So um, that potentially is is an issue, and then you kind of have to add up the different things. So what I've seen a lot with posts and look, it's a, it's a bank run thing. So it's a psychological. So if people post things, investors post stuff, here's a graph of showing this and these are the banks that are going to fail or whatever. Um, and people believe it. If they believe that the big issue is the held to maturity issues or the available for, you know, or whatever the unrealized losses are or the uninsured deposits, which has been a big thing people have talked about then that can drive its own logic right into that actually happening where people believe oh well i saw that this is what people are saying could fail so i'm going to react to it however i think it's a combination of the different factors so um it's your deposits and their structure and what that relationship is and then it's also your assets and it's your assets including both your loans and your securities this is why it makes sense to balance out things a lot more and why always I say like on the podcast and stuff, you know, I would just feel more comfortable if someone, you know, if whatever insurance company or whatever, instead of being a hundred percent in these medium term things or whatever was like uh, 60 or 70% in bonds and 30% in like cash right now um, because it helps with issues like this. 
And so, um, obviously, if you have like a thrift, like you were describing, and the only securities they own, you know, say you had a thrift and they had all uninsured type deposits, and the only securities they owned were long term. Well, that's very they're they're borrowing as short term as you can possibly borrow, and they're lending as long term as you can possibly lend, and owning things on top of that that have the same effect. But if you mixed in other things so that you you borrowed more longer term, it's one thing. Not a lot do that. Um, and also, you're like your securities were shorter term. It's not a big deal. I also don't see any issue if you were like a. Um, let's pretend, for instance, there was a bank that was doing uh, credit card and car loan, right? Like you know, we know what CarMart looks like and those sorts of things. If they went out and loaded up on securities and held them to maturity, I would not be worried because your receivables on the other stuff is going to turn to cash very fast. So like your loans are your liquid part and it's okay. What you don't want to do is combine long-term mortgage type stuff with securities or long-term, you know, if you have short-term loans, then do long-term securities if you want to. Um, Certainly don't combine the two together. It's the overall balance sheet, you know? And uh, so, but yes, thrifts are specifically at serious risk of this. And thrifts are the ones that, it's not really a term that people use as much today, but they're obviously the ones that had the problem in the in the 80s when the interest rates were raised for a period of 10 years or something and they got into a lot of trouble. And so they're the same ones that would be at risk. So it sounds to me when you say to his question, if Silicon Valley Bank did not have a run on their deposits, could they have survived? To me, it sounds like you're basically saying it's not exactly realistic to even think about that because banks don't go into this static mode. I mean, if you want my honest answer, I think that something like Silicon Valley Bank would eventually fail. It would just be much bigger when it failed. I think with the business model Silicon Valley Bank had and the attitude that management had, they would always fail. Um, But that's not a popular opinion. I've said that I believe, and I'm sure the company completely disagrees, that if there was a farm bubble like in that there was in this country, you know, half a century ago or whatever, um, that Farmer Mac would be at risk. I don't think that something that's built that way can handle a bubble like that. I just don't. And I think that it is a very real risk that Silicon Valley Bank has and others, like when we just read the PacWest thing, I believe that is a huge part of it and hugely misunderstood part of it. Um, the volatility issue. Um, it's not impossible to run a bank that way. It's like what I've said with the insurance things. An insurer could, and some reinsurers have done things like this, but an insurer certainly could, and especially if it's part of a bigger organization, greatly decrease its premiums. But understand what that would do to the insurer and to their investment portfolio. There's a reason why they don't do that. And there's a reason why banks um, you know, don't, um, that they generally grow all the time. It's much easier that way. And uh, I think that depending on deposits that are this risky is a very big problem. Um, even if you look at something like Frost, there are potentials there if their energy business was really, really big that it could be more volatile, both in terms of what happened with loan stuff and in terms of deposits. As we know from looking at energy companies, right? We look at publicly traded energy companies. 10 years ago, they wanted loans and didn't have cash or about 10 years ago. Today, they don't want loans and they have cash. And 
so you know i really do believe that your greatest safety is just the basic business model of what you have um if you imagine a world in which you had an insurer that writes auto insurance which is um like minimum coverage automotive insurance which is required by law um floats pretty predictable like you can misprice it and stuff but i think there's franchise value there there's ways to fix it and whatever and you can go out and invest not thinking a lot about what you're doing. If you said, I'm going to write pandemic insurance, I'm going to write terrorism insurance, and that's the only thing that I'm going to write, then you probably don't want to go out and buy like 30-year bonds because some years premiums will be really high and other years premiums will be, no one will want anything. Um, like it'll just vary a great deal. And so the most banks have businesses in which the deposits are very predictable normally. Um, because of what they're doing. The specific banks that we've talked about all have highly volatile deposit bases that like we know from common sense. Literally the ones that we've talked about are um, groups connected in some way to venture capital, to crypto, to private equity, to um, you know money management, hedge funds, whatever in some way, um, and to um, meme stuff, things mm -hmm. like that. They all experienced very rapid growth. And, you know, that's sort of the concern is that very rapid growth. Um, the the idea is like, could Silicon Valley, ha could this have worked? It certainly could have worked if deposits can grow a lot coming in, but don't shrink, don't have the same volatility. And there are some businesses like that historically, right? So like, um, those are the great businesses that people love. Like, you know, your meta or your, cable companies back when they were a big deal they grew incredibly fast and yet no one ever cut the cord no one ever um churned right like when people signed up for netflix originally they signed up at a tremendous rate and didn't cancel um but in most businesses if they sign up at a tremendous rate they could leave at a tremendous rate and so really really sticky businesses tend not to be have a surge like we've seen um but it's a judgment call because I know that there are other people who feel the opposite of me in that um, things that I think are good deposits to have, they think are bad and vice versa. The reason why I like the low cost deposits, to put it very bluntly though, is it allows you to run the bank safely. Having the, the I mean, I think to be honest, even if it was government policy and stuff, my biggest advice would always be to try to figure out how to make the uh, institution as highly profitable as possible using those variables that they control. I think it's in everyone's interest to have the lowest possible costs associated with providing the service to people. So very low non-interest expense divided by deposits divided by assets and to pay low amounts of interest on cash um, so that they're able to buy whatever securities they want and turn a profit. Um, the best thing would be that a bank has the option to go out and buy a two-year treasury and that's all that they do and they can still pay a dividend and they don't go broke. Um, once you get away from that, you have problems. And, uh, you know, if you go back to the SNL and all, crisis and all those things, um, to some extent, the actions taken there are by necessity because what are we going to do? We have to do something. Um, we, we need that yield because we're not that efficient. We're not that, we don't have a big enough spread, whatever it is. Um, 
So, cause I know that some people talked to me and said like, well, maybe frost is like too conservative on some things. And some other banks are a little more aggressive on that and whatever. Um, but you know, in those cases, they often end up with the same return equity. I, I their mm. culture may be very different and everything. It's totally possible, but one has that option and the other one doesn't because if you're that efficient, then you have that, that possibility, you know, um, progressive is a great example. They've for a very long time have not done anything to get really good returns in their investment results. And they're, comfortable with it because of their underwriting results. If it wasn't a very successful underwriting business, I'm sure they would take risk on the investment side. Yeah. And that was going to be the, the next question that I wanted to bring up because, um, people have also been wondering about insurance companies. Uh, somebody had said, can the rapid increase in interest rates have any similar effects on insurance companies to banks? Perhaps this is a naive understanding, but insurance companies also invest heavily in treasuries and must have liquidity on hand to pay out claims. I know that customers can't, in quotes, run on an insurer like they can pull deposits out of a bank, but can the paper losses caused by interest rate hikes cause any sort of material harm to insurers? Yes, it can cause harm to them. And yes, a lot of them bought things that are too long-term. There's a few differences. Um, one, which is a great point, I know that customers can't run on insure like they can pull deposits out of bank. That is key. Um, sources of float that are other than just getting paid interest are really, really attractive. Um, that's why I mention um, American Express and interactive brokers. Um, they're very short term and stuff and they can make that money. But again, like it's not that they just choose, okay, I'm just going to make my money earning a spread overnight basically it's that the people who are giving them money um and who are borrowing from them are doing it really for reasons that are very different and so i'm sure there's a factor that some people would leave interactive brokers for schwab if they got a little bit better rate on something but a lot wouldn't and um you know american express has like a huge corporate business for instance you could see it disclosed in their in their 10k and stuff it's you know it's not going to leave at the same way that the Silicon Valley bank stuff left, or it's not going to leave because of being charged slightly more interest, slightly less, being paid slightly less, whatever. Um, so that's a key part of it is that the same, there's going to be demand for insurance so that you can have this. Um, so that you can maintain your, your float. The other thing is if you look at the actual balance sheets of many insurers, they don't own as much in treasuries usually. Um, so insurers, it depends, but I would say insurers prefer to, if they have treasuries and stuff, they might be quite short term. And um, I think you're going to see more corporate bonds on insurers balance sheets as compared to banks. Um, and it'll depend on the insurer. You have to look through it yourself, but it will be easier to find insurers that are less exposed to this probably. Um, inflation is a potentially big issue for insurers though. Um, and it's the combination of inflation, you know, higher interest rates and stuff. So insurers do have this issue to some extent, and I'd be cautious about it. And I'm sure, you know, some of them bought too much long-term stuff during the last 10 years. Um, but some is shorter. Uh, and then some is very differently positioned. I mentioned GBLI global indemnity on the podcast before, they went like basically to cash. So, and you know, so, I mean, there, there's some insurers like that where the float probably stays around longer than the stuff they're invested in. 
So they're, they're not borrowing short and lending long at all. Um, but there are some that are. That's the other issue, actually. If you look, which is fascinating about this, there's like some life insurance companies and stuff that trade at very low price to book. And this kind of explains why some banks did what they did. Um, some of the banks that we've talked about um, don't look all that different than those life insurance companies. And the life insurance companies are safe, but they trade at like a third of book and stuff because they, they've, you know, it's they're People are very aware of this issue that they bought a lot of long-term um, securities and stuff. And uh, that is, they didn't treat those banks that did that the same way. And it may be because of the accounting and things like that. But, uh, you know, banks wouldn't want to be valued like these insurers. And so I think that that's part of what we, you know, dealt with. That they don't want to run a super safe, some of these banks could run things that are super safe with low returns on equity and have a value that's a fraction of book value instead of trading at a premium to book and having a 10% return on equity. So when you're talking about how basically you would run a bank, low cost of deposits, being able to stay very liquid, invest in riskless uh, government treasuries, still be able to earn uh, a return on equity. I mean, very conservative banks like that. Are we talking market returns on equity? Market type returns on equity? Is this 10, 12, 13%? Well, a few things. Um, one, I mean, if banks could do that, they'd be happy to do that, obviously. Mm -hmm. The other one is uh, I don't have a problem with taking a lot of risk on some things if you could get it. Um, I have a problem with taking an extreme amount of risk on one particular area. So, um, for instance, I do think it would be better for many if they could have loaded up more on um, higher risk, shorter term stuff. And obviously, it'd be better if they had a blend of different risks that they were taking instead of just loading up on treasuries. Um, you know, like the things I talked about credit card things, auto mm -hmm. things, um, a lot of this. You know, this is part of a much longer thing, which is, you know, we've talked that there's like, um, what do you want to call it, deregulation or specialization or whatever of things over time. But over a long period of time, some bank, some banks don't look all that diversified in terms of the risks they're taking and the length of the time to the maturity of the different things that they're in and everything. So, and, and maybe some of that is also the, the financial crisis where people got scared of that. You know, people will say I'm scared that they're scared of they're in subprime auto, they're in airplane leasing, they're in this, but all those have features that help them offset each other, you know, in terms of a balance sheet that you would have. So you, they're not all one big bet on something. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the, the big issue here is that over the last 10 years or whatever, we've had a huge increase in deposits and we've had a very mild increase in like CNI lending and stuff, which is probably the like legitimately what the economy needs kind of indicator. And so there just isn't banks have been, you know, made or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but but they have held a lot of money for people without having demand of where they know to put it based on being a bank. Um, they know how to make certain kinds of loans, and there has not been enough demand for that kind of loan versus the things they've been given. So 
like even in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and stuff, we don't even know yet because we don't know how good or bad some of the later loans they made were. I mean, they might have been very marginal too. So they may have had nothing logical to do with the deposits that they were getting. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially during a very bubble time. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the very, very big factors to consider is like how, I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard to say because I just have a different feeling on that than some other things. Um, like, for instance, when Frost had the energy loans being a big deal, it didn't concern me that much. It's a loss that you can deal with in like a year or something. Energy sometimes has great things, sometimes bad things. I, I think it's perfectly good to combine to have a fifth, a sixth of a loan book somewhere in energy and agriculture and what, and things that might be a little differently um, in terms of what the risks are. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not even sure there's a huge problem with borrowing short and lending long, unless that's the entire, um, that's the entire bet of what your bank has become. And for some of these, that is all that's happening. Um, you know, uh, so I mean, a lot of, but a lot of people like that. They like that the credit losses are very low and that the things that they're in are very safe. Um, so uh, yeah, um, I would rather, I would rather many categories of fairly safe than like one category of guaranteed perfectly safe while you're taking a risk that to me seems somewhat elevated, you know? And so mm-hmm. I think the trade-off for some of these things was not good in that you were eliminating cre- credit risk um, to take a lot of um, interest rate risk. I don't get the point of that. Um, but we aren't in the position that these were in, and so we probably can't see that it wasn't available, that there simply weren't the assets that they needed to buy. In many cases, they they might have liked to buy those things, but they, it just wasn't out there for them to do in a way that made sense. Um, now, they probably fooled themselves in terms of thinking the treasury thing made any sense and, or other ones like that. It's not just treasury, but it's, there's mortgage-backed things and there's whatever. But kind of saying, I don't see any loans I can make that make any sense and stuff, but this is okay, you know? Um, so I I think we'll see what happens, but that is definitely a concern that like um, a concern I've been talking about banks and stuff that I have that I think um, I'm very cautious about doing it, talking about banks and and insurers to some extent with people, because um, sometimes just my view of what the dangers are, what the risks are, what is a safe bank, what's not a safe bank are very different from other people's. And so some of the things that were very threatened in this, I think some people thought were very safe. The, the most notable, the one that falls into that category really is First Republic, um, in which I know that some people thought it was very safe. And, um, you know, it it wasn't as safe as... as We've spoken that, about right? that for years, though. Um, I mean, you've brought, we've brought up FRC yeah. on the pod many times. I'm curious because banks generally trade sort of in line with each other if there will be Mm-hmm. opportunities because banks that perhaps may come out better on the other side of this. I mean, I've seen some reports or articles of community banks are being 
I don't want to know flushed is the right word, but they've been having deposit inflows. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if, if a lot of smaller regionals, communities, et cetera, will be brought down in this mess, at least their equity, and if there's going to be an opportunity at some point for what you think is a safe bank uh, to uh, make an investment. Right. One issue that's really interesting this time versus 2007 through 2009, uh, there seems to be extreme reluctance to raise capital. There was not in that period. They were, I mean, the way it's remembered is like, oh, this came on suddenly. But they've been raising capital for like a year. Every bank was raising capital and everything. And then, you know, um, so not everyone. I don't think Bear Stearns raised any money. But um, this time there seems to be an extreme reluctance to do that. And it'll be interesting to see why that is and whether that changes. They obviously think the price isn't good. It came on suddenly. Um, there are probably banks that don't want to recognize losses by taking over things. Um, what about the game theory of it? Oh, we're raising capital. Is that bank... Does that bank have solvency issues? Is that going to encourage, mm-hmm. put a spotlight on the business, perhaps depositors? I mean, you've spoken to, I'm sure, people that aren't really in the financial industry like we are, and they're just seeing the headlines on the news and stuff. It's scary to some people, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, and the other thing is they may think that they don't need to raise any capital. Because it, it it is a liquidity issue that they're facing. Um, that that is possible. I mean, that they I'm sure people will want to come up with some way to be able to avoid taking losses while repositioning their balance sheets or something. Um, you know, I also think that some banks won't take over other banks because of what happened after the financial crisis. So I think if um, when we were talking about airlines, I kind of said this, where I said, oh, well, if there was a terrorist attack, again, like 2001, it wouldn't be as bad for the airline industry because the response would be different. If there was uh, a pandemic, it wouldn't be as bad for the airlines because the response would be different. The one thing I did not say is if there was a financial crisis, it, would be, uh, it wouldn't be as bad. I don't think, I'm not convinced that a financial crisis, if it happened, would work out better this time. Uh, I think it might work out worse because of the reaction people had to the bailouts and everything. So I think that there would be a lot of reluctance to buying other banks and stuff. Um, you know, I don't think that someone would want to buy Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, whatever, because of what happened to them afterwards being held responsible for different things that happened there. Um, and just the way that they were treated, uh, publicly and everything. So, I think that banks won't want to buy each other if they don't like what the other bank was doing and stuff. So that might make it very difficult for banks. Um, the ones that we talked about before, you know, venture and crypto and stuff, they just don't want to buy them probably. And the banks that have been mentioned as ones that buy them, that could buy them, I, I know the banks a little bit and stuff. And, you know, there's a lot of overlap and it makes sense they would they try to get growth and stuff. So it makes sense these banks would do it. But I just don't know that your JP Morgans and stuff are going to be as eager to buy something this time. Um, so I see that as a difference from the financial crisis where they were pretty aggressive in that. They were very eager to do all that stuff. Um, 
as far as the part that you said about people freaking out about and stuff, that is true. Certainly, you know, people have talked to me about it or anything. We don't have data on like the deposit flows and everything. I'm not that sure that people are actually taking their money out of banks that they know well. And even if it's uninsured, um, we know about it with, I mean, even with the amounts that the Fed said and some other things we know, it, it certainly seems like it's a small number of banks that their stock is dropping each, you know, that it's very volatile every day and stuff. Some of the ones we mentioned, like, like First Republic and PacWest and stuff. Um, and so we know about those deposits uh, that happening. And if anything, it may have been that it happened um, when Silicon Valley Bank failed and happened for a period of a couple days and hasn't been that extreme since then. Um, we don't know. But like when people are saying, oh, well, I'm sure that lots of people have taken their money out of Bank of Hawaii and Frost and what. I don't know that that's true. Um, and I don't know that we should assume that because stock prices, common stock prices have moved a great deal, that that reflects what the deposits will be in uh, with these banks. Um, the other issue is that I think that for banks that their balance sheet is overall looks fine to people looking at it, um, it uh, you know, with the borrowing that they can do, uh, I think that they could meet deposit um uh, meet high needs for deposits um, because that's a very basic function and easy thing for the Fed to do. And a lot of these banks do have access to quite a bit of federal home loan bank stuff, which was huge. So the Fed, I mean, I, I think the Fed, you know, had people tapping it for as much as has ever been, but I think that was probably a few banks. Like what? They tell us eventually, I think. I don't know, a few weeks from now or something. At some point. Oh, no. We may not know. We'll we'll find out from news reports and things. I think some of that stuff doesn't have to be reported by the Fed for a couple of years. Um, but the uh, that I was probably restricted to a few banks doing it um, because like PacWest and First Republic both put out information about how much they had in deposit outflows on certain days, and they were very large. So it just. I'm not sure like that explains a lot of the borrowing, um, but you know, it's, it's complicated, but it's possible that a lot of the borrowing that's been reported was from a small number of banks. Um, I do expect the federal home loan bank stuff to be very big over time. Like that's reported some very big numbers and probably will continue to. So, um, and, uh, even ones like, uh, almost all these. Yeah. I mean, the, all the banks that we're talking about basically have been able to, would have been able to borrow some from that kind of stuff. It's usually more expensive. Um, if you have good deposits like those that, you know, like, you know, a Silicon Valley bank had or a first Republic, or whatever, certainly it would cost them more money to do that. Um, for some of the ones that people were talking about, like thrifts and stuff, I'm not as sure. Um, they don't have as good deposit basis and has access to as much of that, you know? So, um, and then we haven't even talked about it, but obviously the, the stock market, you know, has not really been down. So I, that probably has some effect on people in the sense of giving, you know, in the country of giving them the sense that things aren't all falling apart and whatever. Um, because I think individual people like do tend to pay a lot of attention to that. 
we might be more concerned if some huge things happen with bank stocks or with bond things or whatever. But, the, you know, no one is going around saying the yield curve is inverted by 150 basis points or whatever. They're saying, if, is it, what was the Dow up or down today? And especially if you're maybe in retirement and perhaps follow a uh, 60-40 or you have exposure to bonds. I mean, rates have come down a good amount, which uh, probably helped their bond portfolio a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the uh, Powell talked a little bit about that. The big thing there is we have no idea how long any of that stuff will last. Mm-hmm. So, like, did this tighten condition stuff? We just don't know because it's a question of how long it lasts. It's not a big deal if something happens for a few days and then reverses. It's not a big deal, you know, when we talk about bond things, if we see a big move and then a few, and, you know, we're talking a few weeks later and it's reversed itself, you know, it's just not a big thing. But obviously if it continues for a long period of time, then it would change what conditions are and stuff. And so that's the logic there. And that's probably true. I mean, um, people make a big point about how much they increase or don't, but presumably if it's sustained in any way, the effects that we saw from banking stuff would be bigger than at least one um, uh, hike and probably by more than one. So if the headline is the Fed raised rates by, you know, 25 basis points, they may have really, you know, the economy may react as if it's had it raised by 75 or 100 or something, Mm -hmm. or it may pass very quickly. You just don't know. You know, like, you know, that if the Fed raises its rates, it's not going to turn around and cut them immediately, you know, but this is different. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding podcast. If this is the first time you're joining us, uh, be sure to check out all of our content that we put out into the investing world. Uh, best place to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at @focusedcompound. Uh, if you would like to send a question uh, that we can poll for the show, email it to focuscompounding at gmail.com. Uh, we'll continue to follow the situation, talk about it on the podcast. Obviously, there's a lot going on. Um, so you can expect future episodes on this topic. So if you have any direct questions to that, uh, email us, be sure to hit that subscribe and like button wherever you are listening or watching us. Appreciate all the support week after week. Thank you so much. And we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.